All right, so podcast number 36. And in 36, we've got a bit of a special treat. We've got Mike with us, and Mike is a retired SAR tech. And keeping with some wintry themes that we're coming up on now, we're going to be talking a little bit about some crevasse rescue that he was involved with back when he was with the SAR community. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks, Mark. Glad to be here. Right on. So um, I'll just let you, I guess, get right into it. What are we going to be chatting about? Uh, well, you asked me for a, a good SAR story, and I, I thought of a couple that are kind of dovetail together based on the theme. They're both crevasse rescues that I was uh, lucky to be a part of uh, during my service. And uh, the first one started uh, when I was posted in Greenwood, Nova Scotia, and we were finishing our crew day. So uh, there, it's pretty much like any other emergency response organization where we have a day crew and a night crew. And so uh, I was... Uh, in the shop when the night crew came through the door at four o'clock and uh, just for some backstory they are on call so they really only have to show up if they're training at night or if there's actually a so when we saw them roll through the shop door we knew something was up and they told us that their mission uh it was the hercules crew and what they were supposed to do was take a fresh cormorant air crew which is a helicopter and uh transport them to a Callowit to be rested to receive a Cormoran helicopter that was flying from Gander, Newfoundland to get to a Callowit to fly to 100 miles outside of Pangnerton on the north end of Baffin Island to pull off a crevasse rescue for a, a foreign skier that had fallen into a crevasse and had been there for some time. So the story we got about the, the actual skier was that uh, there was two people on the glacier in the middle of nowhere and uh, one had fallen in this crevasse and the other one had managed to make a satellite phone call out and um, request help so that was when we were summoned and um, we talked in the shop that uh, based on the timeline of how long this person had been in the hole that uh, it might be worthwhile to take a bunch of extra sartex up there and all of our mountain rescue kit and potentially drop it onto the glacier and jump in uh ahead of the uh helicopter that was going to take a lot longer to get there than the herkwood the herkwood is going to take about four or five hours to fly there and get over top do a recce and find out where the actual site was and then fly to a back to a Callowit and then um receive and put and uh, receive the helicopter and uh put that there so what uh, we ended up talking uh the rescue coordination center into that plan as opposed to just dropping the cormorant crew up there and um, so we, the Hercules crew called in all the mountain goats, which uh, I wanted to be part of that too, of course, because I'm a, a avid climber, as you know, and uh, had a lot of rope rescue background. So I got on the mission as well, and we took off uh, in hopes that uh, if we found the crash or the crash, the uh, accident site, we would uh, be able to drop our equipment, jump, rescue the guy out of the hole, take care of him and then await the helicopter. So we flew to a Callaway. Mike, because yeah, it was a little crumbly at first, but they, they, it's good now. It's, it's, it's good. So you were coming out of which uh, base? Greenwood, Nova Scotia. So Greenwood, Nova Scotia. The uh, Cormorant was coming out of Gander? That's right. Okay, carry on then. Thanks. Yeah. So our, our flight was to a Callaway to drop the Cormorant crew there, the fresh Cormorant crew there. And uh, 
what the what we did was we put the air crew there and the two Sartex that were supposed to be on the cormorant with the rest of the air crew came with us in case uh, they were needed on the mission uh, in the Hercules at that point. So we flew up to the accident site north of Pangerton. And of course, at this time of year, I believe it was a, around April or so, it was still quite dark out there for most of the, of the day. So when we were up flying, it was all night. And um, we didn't really get a chance to see much once we got up there, but it was some of the best flying I've ever been a part of. The perk pilot was uh, amazing because what we were dealing with was a, a, um, a glacier that was extremely long and very narrow. And these hound's tooth uh, jagged mountains on either side of it. And we're trying to fly at a thousand feet below some of the peaks through shooting the gap of this glacier while we're, while we're trying to search on the ground at night for uh, any signs of anything down there. And so this guy would fly the, the gap basically, and then take a big loop around and we'd do it again and again and again, looking for um, the site, you know, anybody to shine a light at us or any, anything down there. And unfortunately we couldn't see it. And so because we couldn't see it, obviously we didn't know exactly where to jump. So we weren't able to jump at that point. Um, so what our plan became at that, at that point was to fly back to a Callowit, wait for the Gander crew to get there with the Cormorant and then just catch a ride with the Cormorant air crew up. And then we would have, I think we ended up having five Sartex on the ground once we found the site. So we flew up, it took about, I'd say maybe two hours out of a Callowit to, um, to get the pang we refueled and then we kept going um and maybe an hour maybe an hour flight north of pang we found the site because we were in daylight by this point so it was actually relatively easy so okay, we landed so you're coming in on the herc you said it was a four or five hour flight on the herc another yeah. couple hours in on the cormorant to pang to refuel and another hour and after that so you're talking you have been into this to seven to eight hours now seven or eight yeah. hours. yeah and the guy had already been in the hole for some time too Okay. So I think by the time we got him out, he'd been in there about 21 hours. So. Ooh. Okay. Sorry. Carry on. Yeah. So um, we flew, got onto the site, and the helicopter landed, but because it was uh, so remote and so cold, and there's there was nobody coming to get us if anything happened, they stayed uh, engines running. So we went and we disembarked the helicopter and put our crampons on right away underneath the. Uh, the rotor blades because we're on a glacier so we didn't want to move too far away from the helicopter so we um put our crampons on and as we were doing it we were getting frostbite on our faces because between the ambient temperature and the rotor wash so it was it didn't take long it took us like five minutes to get a little bit of frostbite each of us and then we i think we had to walk about 100 meters or so to the site and i was first to the hole we, we encountered uh, the female subject who was the um, surface survivor and um, talked to her. And then she pointed us in the direction of the hole. And it was what it was, was a, a perfect hole. This guy had lined up his skis perfectly with the direction of the, the way the crevasse was lying. And his skis oh. fell straight through. And that was it was like a ski shaped hole, basically, that this guy was in. And so I called down to him and I could barely hear him and I couldn't see him. The, the, uh, the lips of the crevasse undulated as they went down. And he was uh, somewhere down there, probably we think about 75 or 80 feet by the time we put a rescuer down there and, and he ballparked it. But uh, so the guy was conscious and talking to us. And um, so we made a plan right off the bat that we were going to do a two rope system because we had the crew to do it. Normally, Sartex, we do 
modified panorama pickoffs, and I think they've modified their techniques since I've retired again. But it's generally done in teams of two. So because we had five of us, it was easy to, to make a uh, what we were considering a main and belay with two MPDs. And so uh, it was actually kind of interesting because we were on such thick, uh, ancient ice that um, we had to take our ice screws and, and screw them in. And normally you can do that by hand, but we had to take our ice axes and actually jam the pick of the ice axe into the hanger on the ice screw and turn it like a giant wrench to get it into this hard ice. It was so hard. So uh, we knew that we could hang the helicopter off of our anchors pretty much. <laughs> so uh, the, the team lead chose the, our best French speaker to, to uh, go into the crevasse because the uh, subject was from France. And um, it, it turned out he was claustrophobic too, which actually worked out in our favor because then all he had to do was just clip in and tell us to haul because he didn't want to be down there. So uh, <laughs> The sergeant uh, was claustrophobic, you mean? Yeah, he wasn't too happy with holes. We put our fat guy down there. <laughs> nice. So, uh, so, but but it was it, it actually worked out good because uh, most of the mountain goats and the technical rescuer types were running the equipment up top, and he was just the guy on the rope that, no nonsense, just clipped into that guy's harness, and we pulled them both up. And uh, it was actually quite anticlimactic because we did all this production and all this effort for this extreme rescue in this amazing environment, and it probably took us about 20 minutes to set up and get him out and back onto the helicopter. So, um, but, uh, yeah, it was a two rope system with two MPDs. And of course they ended up, uh, uh, orienting themselves into, uh, twin tension by the time we put him in the hole. And, uh, yeah, it went really, really smooth. Um, we treated him for obviously frostbite. Uh, I think he had a dislocated shoulder. I wasn't treating him. I was treating, uh, his companion who just had minor frostbite at this point. But one of the interesting things that, that they did was one of the uh, people that uh, she had talked to on a satellite phone that was talking her through the rescue uh, before we arrived um, had advised her to boil hot drinks and pass them down to him on the rope that they had on the surface. And that's probably what saved his life was the fact that she was able to keep him warm or at least give him hot beverages in the hole. Because one of the reasons we wanted to jump was because we didn't think he would survive until the helicopter got there. No, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. When you stay 21 hours in a crevasse, you know, that's starting to get into some National Geographic kind of video things going on there. Yeah, and I think the ambient temperature was at least minus 20. So, and with his injuries, we didn't know what they were. We weren't sure if he was going to be wedged in there and we were going to have to start chipping away at him or, you know, do some sort of crazy rescue inside the space. Luckily, that wasn't the case at all. But, um, right on. Um, now, with uh, I'm just going to ask some questions just so the viewers kind of know. You're talking twin tension system. You guys are using 11 mil rope, I'm assuming? That's right. Uh, do you guys do anything with the edge prep or do you use any sort of high point when you guys are running crevasse rescues with the edges? Uh, no, we, we went quick and dirty on that one. And uh, I don't even know if we prepared the edge if I remember. I can't remember if we did or not. I, I set up the belay. I was at the anchor for the belay or what we considered the belay. And uh, that was my my gig. I don't know if they protected the edge or not. I did see him come out of the hole, but I don't remember. And what did you guys, did you end up using MA on both lines or just on a single one and running the other one as a true belay? Uh, it was just uh, the the single one that I had was a true belay. Of course, okay. it ended up being twin tension to lower our, our, our Sartek into the hole. But yeah. uh, once we pulled, it, pulled him out, it became just a belay. 
Okay. Now, when you talk about your mountain kits, uh, you're just talking MPDs. Was that something you guys threw into your kits or is MPDs, was that common in the mountain kit at that point in time? Uh, no, it was a brand new piece of kit. It had just been invented and on the market. And we had actually, uh, when we were cycling through one of our uh, uh, progressions, uh, career courses is rigging for rescue. And um, back when it was held in Invermere. And um, so uh, the inventor of the MPD, of course. Uh, you can say his name. I, I plug people all the time here. It's yeah, okay. So Kirk Mothner was our actual <laughs> instructor for many of our courses that we took. And so he was plugging it pretty hard. But he had just made the deal to uh, market it when a lot of us were going through the course. So it was a, still a, a brand new piece of kit. And actually, some of the guys that were on the rescue hadn't seen it in use yet. But uh, some of the guys that had gone to rigging for rescue knew what it was and, and how to use it. Did you have any problems with it in that environment with the ice and the snow? Uh, not exactly. It was more about a knowledge thing, really, because a lot of us thought it was going to be a lot like the 540. And if, if guys, viewers or uh, listeners are familiar with the 540, everybody knows that it really wants to work in a vertical environment, not so much in a, a horizontal environment. And you got to kind of pass the, uh, the rope through it, push, pull. And uh, so we thought the, uh, the MPD was going to behave like that, too. Or, and um, of course, it didn't it started taking half the load once we went vertical and now we were like, what's with this? And now we have, we're having to open the, uh, the cam to, to let it run so that it's behaving itself the way it should. And some of the guys didn't know that that was exactly what was supposed to happen. So they're uh, wanting to throw the thing in the garbage by the end of the rescue. But of course we all got trained up by then. And oh, uh, that was sort of the advent of twin tension where it was, there was not even any literature on it yet. Right on. Um, once you pulled the patient out, where did you take them from there? Uh, we took them to Iqaluit. I can't remember if we handed them there. I think we did hand them in, and left them in Iqaluit, I believe. Okay. That would be the, yeah. that would be the nearest large medical facility up there. Yeah, there was a, there was a, we, we went and refueled again in Pang on the way back down. And I don't believe anybody saw them there. I think we, they stayed in our, and then we flew them to Iqaluit where they, um, I think in an you broke up there a in little the bit. Center in Iqaluit. Oh, there you go. You're back, sir. You broke up yeah. a bit. You went to Pangerton, fueled up, and took him down to Iqaluit. That's right. Okay. All in all, a good day. Uh, by the time you guys made it back home, what were you looking at then? 12, 14 hours? I uh, can't remember. We, we stayed in Iqaluit and had a meal, and um, they had rented some hotel rooms for the crew that was resting to, to receive the helicopter before it got there. And then, of okay. course, the Gander crew went to ground when they got there because they burned a whole crew day just getting the helicopter to a Callowit. Yeah. So um, we went for breakfast and then I think we had some time to, to nap before the Hercules took us all back to uh, Greenwood. It was probably, we were probably gone well, well over 24 hours for sure. I'm not sure exactly how, what the timing of it was, but uh, it was long rescue for sure. But it was definitely worth it. Obviously it's probably one of the highlights of my career. So for all the people that are overseas listening to this, if you don't know Canadian geography, um, most people know where Ottawa is. It's the capital of Canada. It's in northern Ontario, kind of on the Quebec border. Um, it's a three-hour flight on a commercial airline from Ottawa to Iqaluit, which is the capital of the territory of Nunavut. And it's another hour flight north to Pangerton out of Nunavut on a commercial airline. And it's an hour helicopter. These guys were north of Pangerton. So I won't even get in and guess what the nautical or kilometers are from where you started from. And where Mike started from is east coast of Canada, um, 
down well out of the Arctic Circle, and he would have traveled well above the Arctic Circle for this rescue. That make about sense, Mike? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, most of our SAR bases are actually, you know, well, they're closer to the or the Canadian-U.S. border than they are to anywhere else, really. And we fly almost in uh, vertical lines north, and we divide the country uh, uh, horizontally and then go north, basically, for rescues as, as it goes. Right on. Now, you said you're going to double dovetail this in with another crevasse rescue. Yeah. So I, before I got, you I got get there, hang on. Before you get there, do you, on your um, sixes or five A's, do you guys do crevasse rescue training with Cyril, or is it a specialty that gets covered only with the mountain goats? Uh, no, it, it's, uh, we have a contractor in um, Jasper, Alberta. His name's Cyril Shakopoulos, and he's been doing it for about 30 years, and he's excellent. He stays on top of the latest techniques. He's a uh, a mountain guide with the Association of Canadian Mountain Guides, but he also stays very, very well connected and educated in organized rescue, like the technical rope geek stuff as well. And he marries it up really nicely because he knows that's exactly what we need. So uh, uh, what we end up doing is we have a basic five course where we do crevasse rescue, which is a basic self-arrest, build the, the drop loop system is what they were using at the time I was in. And, um, and then it gets up into organized team rescues and leadership stuff once they get into our team lead course which is uh which is uh, i think i'd already graduated from that when we did the uh the rescue so. okay cool so back to the other one then yeah so i was lucky enough to be part of a training uh mission that we were going up to climb mount logan which is the highest mountain in canada and it's in uh the yukon right on the border with alaska you can actually, at some points on the mountain, you can actually see Mount Denali across the way in Alaska. So um, I was part of an all-star tech climbing team that went up there and we spent, I think, 10 days on the actual climb on the King's Trench route, uh, which is uh, pretty much the trade route up the mountain, but it's by no means easy. It's a long ski and a relatively non-technical, but um, a cramp on a approach on the summit day so we bagged the summit in good weather and we were about to get some real nasty weather coming in which actually ended up um, putting us in base camp for five days but on the way down from the summit uh, there were two of us had headed out ahead of uh, the rest of the group that stopped to collect our skis and um, kind of have a break and they they were uh, still hiking so by the time we were down climbing through this uh, glacier at about 18,500 feet, we figure. Uh, we watched one of our guys go straight into a hole. He just disappeared. And then as they were roped together, the other fella started sliding across the ice and did a classic self-arrest and stopped the fall. So not only did he save the life of his rope team partner, but probably his own too. We figure if they both went in the hole, they'd probably still be there. And um, so, uh, of course, we rushed down to the scene and I, I, pa I bypassed two of my friends who at that point were already setting up the system. Even before we even approached the edge, they pretty much had a drop loop system built. And um, so I approached the edge and our expedition leader was on the other side of the crevasse. And um, we called down at the same time. And uh, the first thing out of the guy's mouth as he's dangling down there uh, about 80 feet again, we figure, as he yells up, you better be taking pictures. <laughs> but the funny part that the, that ties these two together obviously the, the theme of crevasse rescues is the expedition leaders he's about a meter away from me across this crevasse that the guy's just fallen into and he looks at me and he's like 
the other one had just happened. The one in, in Pang had just happened about six weeks previous. And he looks at me and he says, these things follow you around, don't they? <laughs> exactly. So, uh, like I said, uh, um, my friends had had the drop loop system built. So at that point, I just put a backpack on the edge and um, the guy in the hole had taken his backpack off his back and screwed it into the wall of the crevasse with an ice screw. And so, um, and our, our uh, other guy that rescued him or saved him with a self-arrest was doing yeoman work, just hanging out, holding a self-arrest position. And we had uh, our subject in about 10 minutes, but uh, we just helped him with the uh, edge transition a little and uh, that was pretty much it. It was a classic. But, um, we were laughing about it later. Is who better to fall in a crevasse with? Even in an extreme environment like that, you got eight star techs around to rescue you. Yeah, you broke up there a little bit. Sorry. So you drop looped, you went in. Yeah. So for people who don't know the drop loop system, basically you just drop a, uh, a two or a bite of rope down to the patient. And either a rescuer goes down there and fixes it to them, or if they're conscious and capable like our guy was he can hook it onto himself and it, there's the two to one it starts and then you can build another two to one onto there and you end up with a four to one up top with a ratchet system built in there's all kinds of combinations you can do to build a ratchet into the system and then you just build a four and haul so uh, but yeah we built that and uh protected the edge and then my job at that point because i was already at the edge and the other guys had built the system was i just uh helped them up with the edge transition at that point is uh, even though we protected the edge, it was kind of digging in. So I just vectored the rope up and pulled him up uh, kind of out of the birth canal when he uh, crossed the lip of the crevasse there. Right on. And then uh, get all your kit back on and carry back on, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, we kind of just laughed at how lucky we were. So. Right on. Um, crevasse rescue in general, any lessons learned or anything to pass on to the listening public out there of, uh, of tricks of that trade for that? Uh, yeah, stay roped up. <laughs> uh, that, that's the big one. Like, um, uh, the, the guy who arrested our, uh, um, our subject, the guy that was in the hole, our buddy, um, had tied alpine butterflies in between them. There was three butterfly knots in between them and they were probably about, I don't know, 60 or 70 feet apart maybe and then we figured he fell 80 feet with rope stretch or something like that but uh um the fellow that arrested him he ended up about a meter and a half away from the edge of the crevasse himself and he felt the knots actually popping on the side of the the lip of the crevasse as they were breaking the snow on the snow bridge and so he figures that that was the difference between him going in the hole was the friction that was created by those alpine butterflies. Yeah. So just so the listeners understand for folks that haven't done mountain work, you're tethered, your, your partners are tethered together by rope and you're putting alpine butterflies in there so that in case something like this occurs, it does provide a bit of friction when that rope runs the edge. Yeah. That, that's correct. Yeah. I saw, I saw it work with my own eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Right on. Um, now, when you're creating your drop loop, are you using part of the rope that they're connected together or are you uh, piggybacking another rope onto that system? No, the, the two guys that I that I bypassed that were building the system were using the rope that they were tied to at that point, And they built a separate system at that point. But but if um, 
you know what you're doing and you have enough rope when you're divided up. If you're a team of two and there's nobody else around, certainly if one person catches the other person's fall, if you have enough rope to build it, you can certainly do it with your rope that uh, you've caught the other guy on. If that's, Especially most climbing teams, that's all they would have, right? It's just a pair, yeah. <clears throat> and some guys will uh, rope differently too, so they do have a little bit with them and keep that eventuality. That's right. Okay. Um, Mount Waddington, how – it was – no, sorry, it was Logan you're on, not Waddington. That's right. Yeah, Logan. Okay, and how tall is Logan total? Uh, it's – I think 19,700 something. It was pretty tall. Like we had to acclimatize. Yeah. So you were, you were actually in the upper regions of the mountain still when that occurred. Oh yeah. We had just, we had just tagged the summit and we were at our skis where we stopped skiing and started, uh, on crampons with ice axes. So, um, we, we were probably maybe only an hour off the summit. And so that's, you know, for people listening, when things go wrong, they're not going to go wrong when you're fresh and on the way up to the summit. They're going to wait till you get up there, get the snot kicked out of you and be on your way back down, you know, thinking about other things like a warm tent to crawl, crawl back into when this is going to occur. Well, and there was a rescue that had occurred a few years before ours up on those reaches in the mountain that high. And uh, the, the complete team was incapacitated to the point where they needed a, a helicopter and the only place they could get a helicopter with rescuers that were acclimatized was on Mount Denali. So they actually called the U.S. National Park Service over to take their climbing rangers from their camp at 14,000 feet. And they, when they go up to 14,000 feet, they, they perform rescues at the higher um, altitudes on the mountain because they're acclimatized. So they had to pull them off that mountain and fly them to Logan to do the rescue because they had the acclimatization. Yeah, I could see that. You know, it's something you don't really think about when these things occur. So it's another kind of lesson learned if you're a mountain team and you've got those type of extremes in your location. It's having that acclimatization to go and pick someone off of there. Yeah, you, you pretty much have to be self-sufficient at that point. So, Absolutely. All right. Anything else you want to throw in here about crevasse rescue and uh, those responses? No, I can't think of it. I miss it a lot. I haven't... Uh been in the mountains significantly like that in a few years now but uh, uh well, no i can't really away, think of anything you, technical. Live now it's pretty flat <laughs> <laughs> yeah i get a few short weeps of ice and that's about it right on well we'll uh we'll try to bring you back i know you've got some other stories for some things that you've done when you were in the service and uh i'm sure viewers would like to hear them but for right now we'll call this one a day yeah absolutely it's been a pleasure thanks for coming on mike no worries.